You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. I got something I want to talk about to you. It's time for Communication Mixdown here on 3CR. I'm Judith Peppard, and I begin by acknowledging that 3CR is broadcasting from the stolen land of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nations, true owners and caretakers of this land, and we pay our respects to elders, past and present, and acknowledge the resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonization and settlement. Today on Communication Mixdown, Historian Barbara Minchinton will be telling us about her new book, The Women of Little Lawn, Sex Workers in 19th Century Melbourne, which looks particularly at the sex industry in Melbourne from the mid-1800s to the end of the decade. Barbara Minchinton's book was inspired, in part, by an urban archaeology project that began back in the 1980s to investigate settler history in the area of Little Lonsdale Street in Melbourne's CBD. So I began by asking Barbara what urban archaeology is, because I hadn't heard a lot about it before. Urban archaeology is the term that is now attached to the study of the growth of 19th century cities. And what does it offer to the broader study of history? A way of looking at the material culture development in places like Melbourne. We know there was an enormous growth in the way people bought things, what they bought, where they bought them from. And by looking at the archaeology, we can see where those trading routes were, whether they're from China or particularly from Britain. A lot of the China is coming in direct from Britain. We're learning about all of that commercial stuff, but we're also learning a lot about the very personal ways that people lived. What kind of medicines did they use in the 19th century? We've got the bottles that they came from. We've got things like the kind of china that they used. So we're learning things about the way people use material goods. Fashions in China, people might just throw out an entire dinner set because they wanted to change the style of the china that they were using. That was not so much in Little On in the area I'm interested in, but it does tell us a lot about how people lived, what their values were, how they thought about the world. When you say Little Lawn, what's the area you're talking about? The eastern end of Little Lonsdale Street, from Springs Street on the east down to generally Exhibition Street, but even a bit further. It was called Little Lawn because that street ran in the middle of two blocks, which were really the centre of the sex work precinct in the late 19th century. Prior to Little Lawn becoming the main area, The area around Little Burke Street was particularly known for its brothels, but it was subject to a lot of slum clearance around the 1880s, and that pushed a lot of the women into Little Lawn, which is why Little Lawn became the name that was associated with that particular industry. When this project started back in the 1980s, did people realise this was a major sex work precinct? The archaeologists certainly knew the reputation of the place, and They were actually interested in delving a bit beyond that. I mean, a reputation is something that 
is easy to raise but not so easy to destroy. And they wanted to know what kind of a community really was it. So the early archaeologists were really interested to undermine that slum reputation that it had. As we went on with the later study, I just became interested in the fact that every cottage seemed to have been lived in by sex workers at some point or another. It was certainly a mixed community. There were a lot of labourers living there, a lot of families with criminals in them, but who were doing respectable work otherwise. It was a very mixed community, but there was a very heavy presence of sex workers towards the end of the century. What would it have been like if you and I were walking around Little Lawn in the 1870s, 1880s? What would we be seeing? What would we be hearing? It would depend, I think, on what time of day. By the end of the century, really from the 1880s onwards, there was an increasing presence of industry there during the day. So you'd have a lot of mechanical type industries going on, including building furniture and so on. But then during the night, it became much more of a dodgy place to be. The back lanes particularly, you wouldn't have ventured into them without a bit of protection. Certainly as a woman, you wouldn't have ventured in there unless you were one of that community. You're talking now about at night. And I was wondering whether, as well as the danger you've described, there would be also any celebratory stuff going on, like any music or dancing. Little Lawn could be quite a mixed place to be. The notion of respectability was determined by where you were. So if you're in a respectable suburb and you're a woman, you couldn't go out without your gloves and your, your bonnet on. But if you were living in a back lane of Little Lawn and it was a hot night, you'd be outside socialising in the street and you wouldn't be wearing your gloves or your bonnet and you might be showing your petticoat. And if a man happened to wander along with a harp, he might just play a tune and there might be a bit of singing and dancing going on in the streets too. So the idea of respectability was quite different in Little Long to what it was in the other suburbs. So walking through the streets of Little Long, you might see people dancing in the streets. You might see people singing. You could certainly hear instruments. Pianos were a very popular thing in the brothels in the 19th century. They, almost all the ones that they would call the respectable brothels, all had a piano and they kept the doors open so that they could attract their patronage. The policemen talked about walking along the street and hearing the pianos and people singing, but you could also hear a lot of swearing, a lot of bad language, a lot of dangerous stuff going on as well. Very mixed community, really. So looking at the broader context, Sex work was not illegal in Melbourne in the 1800s, but I do understand the police managed to bring cases against sex workers. How did they do that? The police used the laws, the vagrancy laws, in order to control where sex workers were working. And vagrancy laws basically said that a disorderly house could be prosecuted or a woman with no visible lawful means of support could be prosecuted. But they didn't essentially do anything about the sex workers unless they were what they defined as disorderly. So unless they were causing a nuisance to the public through violence or theft, they had a particular term for the theft that took place in some brothels. They called it bilking. And what they meant by that was a woman might take a bloke home to her brothel take some money from him to go to the pub to get some drink. And while she was away, her partner had come along and tell him, sorry, mate, out you go. So she would keep the money that she'd collected for the drink. 
They called it bilking and it was particular to sex work. The police would just charge them with theft. In order to move the houses, if they were living next to someone who was complaining about them, the police would basically threaten them with that kind of charge, disorderly behaviour. So the women would then just move rather than be charged and taken to court. It was kind of an understanding, I suppose, amongst all of them that the police could and would do this if they kept their houses quiet, if they didn't make a nuisance of themselves, the police would leave them alone. There wasn't a law against sex work as such, but it was certainly policed. And if you've just joined us, I'm speaking with historian Barbara Minchinton about her new book, The Women of Little Lawn, Sex Workers in 19th Century Melbourne, which was published in August this year and available at all respectable bookshops. Barbara points out in the book that around half of the women in the sex industry in Little Lawn were Irish, as were many of the police. I wondered if she'd seen any evidence of the Irish police officers looking out for their countrywomen. The only lovely piece that I've seen about an Irish policeman was there was a complaint from a butcher who worked in Lonsdale Street and he was a very sanctimonious man. He complained one night that there was a policeman dancing with the women in the street. Another policeman had to investigate and it turned out it was a young Irish policeman on the beat, round and round and round the streets as they did. And he just came across a man playing a harp in the street and a bunch of women from one of the houses dancing. So he took one of the women by the waist and he circled round with her a couple of times and then went on on his beat. And the butcher complained. And the poor man, he was told he had to go to another station because he'd done the wrong thing. It hardly seemed to me to be a very harmful activity, but there you go. That's the only evidence I've seen of the policemen. They knew each other. They were part of the same community. The other thing I noticed in your book was this tension between the British settlers and the Irish culturally. There was quite different cultural backgrounds in that the English judged the Irish because they were more exuberant and more into music and dancing, and whereas the respectability, quote-unquote, you describe, was very much about not dancing and singing in public. We know that there was this conflict going on. Even before they arrived, some of the ships of Irish women, they called them trollops. So there was this judgment going on from the British settlers. I mean, the Irish, they were part of every community in Victoria, really. And it certainly didn't stop the Irish sex workers from marrying. That was the other thing about the sex workers. They did this for a few years until they could find either a marriage or another way of living most of them. I mean, the, the police used to say, oh, they, they were only doing it for three or four years and then they die in the gutter, diseased. Well, it was nonsense. The women very often did it for a few years, keeping the wolf from the door until they found a marriage and, and off they went. There was a huge worry at one point in the Catholic Church about Catholics intermarrying with Protestants. The young Irish women, because there were so many of them coming in, they were coming in single, they were coming in without supportive families the men who were available were very often Protestants. You've seen this whole mix that was working right throughout Melbourne in the 19th century. When we talk about sex work, of course, there was a huge range from the brothels to the women working in the streets. I'm wondering if we can speak a bit about some of the women. I'm particularly interested in Sarah Fraser. Well, Sarah Fraser is an extraordinary character in the sense of her story. She was born in Sydney. 
two of the first Jewish settlers in Sydney. I think her brother was either the first or second Jewish boy to be circumcised in Sydney. Her parents came in as convicts, but they were very good traders and made a very good business very quickly until they went bust in the early 1840s. Sarah herself had an extraordinary sense of the value of material objects. She had 40 rooms in the end decorated in exquisite ways. It seemed like she had theme rooms in her time Her house entertained the Duke of Edinburgh, and there's no question about that. She was obviously very classy in the way she presented her house. I remember reading in your book some of the furniture, some of the materials she had were incredibly exotic and expensive. The one that I was interested in was she had miniatures by Angelica Kaufman, who was, if not the first, one of the first women in the Royal Academy in in England. So She had taste and the question for me was thinking, well, did she see herself as a woman who was doing something quite different or why was she attracted to Angelica Kaufman? Was it because she was a woman doing something that she wasn't expected to do or that it wasn't appropriate for women to do? I think a lot of the the material goods that she had, probably a lot of them were gifts that she'd been given keeping her quiet, if you like, not letting on to wives or anyone else about who her visitors might be, which was a big part of those flash brothels in those days. Who knew what? Who knew who had been there? There was this story about the chief commissioner of police supposedly had this black book where someone reported to him every morning who had been at which flash brothels overnight. Now, it's one of those stories you wonder about, okay, let's see the truth on that. Let's see the evidence. But it sort of rings true, really, with the way the 19th century worked. It was about influence and it was about who knew what on who and how to blackmail people in those positions. So there are a lot of questions. So there were definitely the flash brothels. Is that what they were called at the time, flash brothels? The police strangely enough, referred to them sometimes as the respectable brothels. They were the expensive ones. By the end of the century, they had as bad a reputation as the cheap ones, as the nasty back lane cribs, they called them. There was a whole variety. Whatever a man's wallet held, he could find a brothel to suit. So right from the back lanes where they were just poverty-stricken rooms with nothing but straw on the floor, through to these flash brothels. Madame Brussels' houses in Lonsdale Street, she'd essentially copied the way the respectable people of Melbourne were beginning to live out in the suburbs. So she'd managed to buy three adjoining properties, set them up with a garden, walled garden at the back, so she could entertain people outdoors as well as indoors really reflecting the way the whole society was moving. She was appealing to a particular kind of man who had a very full wallet, usually. There was a massive variety along the same street as Madame Brussels. Hers was one of the flasher ones. There were also brothels there which were a bit of a threat, if you like. There was theft going on from them. There were women moving in and out of them. You're on 3CR. I'm speaking with historian Barbara Mitchenton, author of the women of Little Lawn, sex workers in 19th century Melbourne. After these messages, 
Barbara discusses the attractions of sex work for settler women in 19th century Melbourne and the moral crusaders who sought to put Madame Brussels out of business. If you're a renter experiencing hardship due to the pandemic, you can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant, which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. You're on 3CR, 855 on your dial and streaming live. And whether you're listening on your radio at home, online or in your car, it's great to have you with us. Historian Barbara Minchinton is my guest on Communication Mixdown. She's written The Women of Little Lawn, Sex Workers in 19th Century Melbourne. Now I asked Barbara about the attractions of sex work. They could make a living. A lot of the women were widows. They were deserted wives. There was money to be made out of sex work, which was far and away beyond what women of the working classes could earn doing working class type work. So the work that was available to them was domestic service. If they were sort of a little bit classier, they could work in shops. But the hours for those jobs, factories and so on, they were enormous hours. Domestic service, you're looking at working six and a half days a week. You might get a night or two off through the week if you were lucky. But, well, what do you do with your children? There were no childcare services. People couldn't afford nannies for the children in working classes. So the attraction was the money. The money was good and it was possible for women to raise their children. But the other attraction, I think, was that women were very closeted in the 19th century. They were not expected to be on the street unless they had a, a man beside them. There was a sense of freedom and independence associated with it. One of the things that we know about today is the domestic violence That was very much part of the 19th century too. And a lot of women went into brothels to escape violent husbands. We've got a couple of records of divorces, in fact, where the man wants the woman to come back. He tries to destroy her reputation by saying she's working in the brothel. Well, it's fairly clear why she's working in the brothel, because she gets away from him. People like Madame Brussels, I think, got into it. Her husband left. What's she going to do? She's got no capital to set up a shop, which is something women could do. They could set up a grocery shop and then the kids could be in the back. But you've got to have capital to set yourself up. And some women did, but I think sex work was probably an option for a lot of women that didn't have any capital to back them up. What were the downsides of sex work for women? The downsides of sex work were very much about health and very much about respectability. 
there was no reliable contraception. There was also a lot of sexually transmitted infections. Women tried to protect themselves in various ways. There is some evidence of the flash houses in particular using doctors to check women out and treat them if needed. But of course, there were no treatments for things like syphilis or gonorrhea in that period. So if it was transmitted, she was in trouble, essentially. And there were a lot of quack cures around at that time. There were a lot of quack cures around, a lot of which were poisonous in themselves because they were mercury-based. So if women were using treatments that were mercury-based, they could well poison themselves and live a fairly nasty sort of death as a result. That was certainly one of the hazards, but it was probably overstated. It was one of the things that the moralists pushed. It was a danger, but whether it was as much a danger as they like to push for their own reasons is something else. One of the worst things for women doing sex work was the legislation in 1864 that Victoria introduced to make it illegal for any child under the age of 15 to be kept in a brothel. Given that a lot of the women started working in this area because they needed to feed their children in some way, it was a pretty nasty set of regulations that any policeman could come along and take children from a brothel and present them to two magistrates and have them put into an industrial school for up to seven years. The evidence that I've got says that that certainly did happen, but here is another case where the policeman made choices about who they would charge on that basis. If women were quiet and well-behaved and their brothel wasn't a nuisance, they left the children alone. Women must have lived in fear, fear of the diseases they might contract and fear for what might happen to their children if the police get involved. Yes, and the records of the industrial schools are pretty horrendous. You've mentioned moral crusaders, and I'm wondering if you could just say a bit about how Melbourne responded when the Salvation Army came to town. When the Salvation Army came, at first there was this sense that they were doing the wrong thing. They were out in the streets making a noise. They were banging their drums. They were attracting all these people from the back lanes to follow them around the streets. Melbourne City Councillors thought this was dreadful. What are they doing? They're just making a nuisance of themselves. The thing about the Salvation Army was that they were doing it because it did attract people they wanted to save, which, of course, was all about the moral sense of what was right and what was wrong. But the Salvation Army were also feeding people in the back lanes, giving them Christmas dinner, for example. I mean, who ever thought of giving women who are struggling in poverty and doing sex work, who ever thought of giving them Christmas dinner in the 19th century? Like it was just such a, an extraordinary thing. That was why so many people in the back lanes were attracted to them because A, they could be out in the street and B, they could actually get some help from them. But the Salvation Army chummed up with a man called Henry Varley. Varley was more of a judgment man than he was about a helping the sinners man. And he was the one who really whipped up quite a moral frenzy around Madame Brussels in particular, the flash brothels. He hated them with a vengeance and he made a lot of noise in the newspapers about them. And the combination of the two really turned things around, if you like, for the sex workers. And it turned it around at absolutely the worst time, which was the 1890s, when Melbourne was in the middle of its worst depression, about 30% unemployment. 
and suddenly the, the sex workers are getting Henry Varley and the Salvation Army breathing down their necks, telling them they're morally evil and they shouldn't be doing this. So in 1891, they introduced a law against soliciting in the streets. In the 1890s, it was a very, very cruel time for the sex workers in particular. Yeah. As a person who's done research into this area, have you run into any descendants of the sex workers that you investigated? I have certainly made contact with a number of them. The acceptance is wonderful. There's not that sense from the descendants that they're ashamed of what their mothers, grandmothers and great-grandmothers were doing. There is very much an appreciation of how tough their lives were. I mean, of course, amongst the sex workers, there were the ones who were taking advantage, who were thieving, not necessarily the best people in the world, but who of us is. The families, they're generally so accepting of their forebears and it's great to see. I'm wondering how much the ideas about sex work in the late 1800s in Melbourne are still with us in uh, 2021. They're still very much with us in certain places. But I think having Fiona Patton pushing the review of sex work legislation in Victoria, I think that's going to show us just how much of these 19th century values are still there. We need to accept that as long as there is a value placed on sex work in this monetary way, that people are going to choose to do it. This is work for people. People are earning their living doing this work. So we'll find out about the 19th century values in the next year or so. I think we will. And tell me, Barbara, what's your next project? I'm actually currently working on a full biography of Madame Brussels and her husband, which is turning up all sorts of interesting stuff. I've had a genealogist working in Germany and combing the records relating to her. So I'm still deep in sex work mode. And that was historian Barbara Minchinton. And I'm looking forward to reading Barbara's next book on Madame Brussels because I so enjoyed her current book, The Women of Little Lawn, Sex Workers in 19th Century Melbourne, which was published last month and is available at most bookshops using Click and Collect. And do check out Barbara's interview on 3CR's Done by Law for a greater focus on the legal aspect of her book. And also, check out 3CR's own program, Behind Closed Doors, Sex Work from a Sex Worker's Perspective, which airs at 6pm on Thursdays. I'm going out with Patterns of Nature by Sweet Whirl. Take care and stay safe. Until next time. time I know we work together Maybe all I need to feel alright is close my eyes and piece together All the little minutes and the small hours we spend together To find the picture for the wall I've been looking for The picture for the wall
Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.